Welcome to the Trad Dads Podcast, where we examine cultural and political issues through the lens of traditional thought. All right, today we are going to be talking about uh, Rerum Novarum and sort of the the, the 30,000 foot view or the uh, general overview of Catholic social teaching. And so, uh, of course, uh, Levi Russell, that's me. And today I have Isaac with me, uh, who's going to kind of lead the discussion uh, about Catholic social teaching and just give a good overview of how, what that means and how it works. So Isaac, uh, what, what, what's the first, uh, what do you think is the first thing we should hear about Catholic, Catholic social teaching to sort of give us uh, a general overview? I think the most important thing to dive into is why it is so important to understand economics. Because I, I know a lot of people, a lot of Catholics I've talked to, they, they, don't, they don't really see the importance of a lot of sort of the periphery stuff. They kind of stick to the spiritual and, and to, the, to the facts of the faith in, in their daily life, in a sense. And, and there's some validity to that and to focusing most on those things. But we have to also see the significance and the reason uh, for the... And the reason, the reason for one of the most groundbreaking encyclicals, which is Rerum Novarum, and I'll just, I'm going to read the first paragraph of that because it sort of sets the stage really well for, what, for why this is necessary, why it's so crucial. So it starts out with, that the spirit of revolutionary change, which has long been disturbing the nations of the world, should have passed beyond the sphere of politics and made its influence felt in the cognate sphere of practical economics is not surprising. The elements of the conflict now raging are unmistakable in the vast expansion of industrial pursuits and the marvelous discoveries of science, in the changed relations between masters and workmen, in the enormous fortunes of some few individuals and the utter poverty of the masses, the increased self-reliance and closer mutual combination of the working classes, and also, finally, in the prevailing moral degeneracy. In the momentous gravity of the state of things now obtaining, fills every mind with painful apprehension. Wise men are discussing it. Practical men are proposing schemes. Popular meetings, legislatures, and rulers of nations are all busied with it. Actually, there is no question which has taken deeper hold on the public mind. So Leo is going through and he's saying, okay, there, there's a whole lot of stuff that's rising up because of the state of the economics and because of the state of the, uh, of the, of the, of the working class, in a sense. And this is very dangerous because he notes the spirit of revolutionary change. And that's the most dangerous thing because when you reject sort of an authority and you, and you think the solution is to overturn that and to correct it from the outside, you're essentially following the sort of the satanic model of change. It's, it's not, there are, there's a lot of, lot to be discussed about just war and, and whatnot. Um, but in, on the whole, if you don't respect those institutions of authority that God has ordained, then everything else will be totally off, will just totally stray off into, into what is called the spirit of revolutionary change. So I want to, I want to touch on something that's kind of interesting here is, uh, you know, so that, that I feel like that paragraph could be written today. Um, but it was written by Leo the 13th in 1891. Um, and so it's kind of interesting how, there's there's a sort of um, almost a universality to it, uh, given the time frame that we're in, um, and so I, I I suppose that you know someone might say, well, you know um, there were all these problems that Leo identified, and even if he was right, you know we're still doing just fine, we're still here. Um, is that is that kind of something you want to that you would want to get into or respond to? Well, yeah, I think the 
I think it's more relevant today than it was then. And there's a reason I say that, um, despite the fact that we might say, hey, our, but my conditions of living are so much better. My life expectancy is so much better. Um, the, the sh all the things that I have access to, all the, um, all the different flavors of all these different foods and, and, and everything that you can point to that is sort of the, the symbol of decadence. Most of these are the, are the consequence of technology and they sort of understate how, how, significantly, um, how significantly it is worse for you know, people who aren't in the, the first world or how significantly worse it is for, for many of the poor. It can understate those things quite a bit and understate how, how dangerous it is. And even though, you know, there's, the millennials do tend to get a lot of flack for a lot of things, and much of it rightly so, there is something to be said about how, um, how dangerous it is to have a whole generation of people who aren't having kids, who are too indebted from education to, to start a family early on, to, who are considered basically, uh, you know, um, where you think of a citizen as just like a taxpayer and, um, and you have this atomized, atomization of people where um, we don't have any connection to our local communities. Everything is global. Everything is, everything is sort of national. And that leads to, to an alienation of people culturally, not even to, to mention the, what the loss of extended family does for your ability to raise a family. So I think there's a lot of pieces there. Um, and when I, when I thought about this and tried to write um, different things about it, of course, I've, I've got the project on uh, the, the, the Catholic economics project uh, that I've been working on on the Trad Dads website is, is kind of about breaking down these, uh, breaking down policy proposals uh, through the, the idea that they should support the family, they should be consistent with subsidiarity, and they should be economically efficient. And I think what, what you just said, there, there's a way to sort of break this out into all kinds of different areas. So there's sort of the economic efficiency or technological component that, you know, a lot of people focus on. We have, um, you know, Steven Pinker's book, uh, recent book uh, that, that focuses on this. And then, um, you know, I, I guess the, the response to some of that is like, okay, yeah, we have better blenders and, you know, we have a very low, um, you know, uh, rate of uh, death of the population who is under five years old, right? Which was a huge problem 150 years ago when we didn't have modern sanitation and stuff like that. Um, so there is all this technological and economic progress. But then when we look at other, and even in the third world, I would say, right? I mean, even generally speaking in the third world, there, there is some progress there. Um, and I think, you know, obviously that's a, that's a completely other topic that not that I don't want to get into it here necessarily, but it's just so interesting, all of the things to talk about when we're talking about, um, foreign aid and stuff like that. So there is a lot of technological and economic progress and the cost of things is falling, um, and, and all of that sort of thing. And we're getting better stuff. But then when we look at all these other pieces, like I would say sort of the moral piece that encompasses family um, and, and that sort of thing. And then the political piece where we talk about, um, you know, culture and uh, nations and how people group themselves together and things like that. I just think there's, there's so much there. And, and, you know, as an economist, you know, I, I have, I, in my relatively short careers, I guess, I have focused so much on that first piece and I never really thought about, uh, you know, so much how these other pieces fit in. 
And it's, it's just one of these things where it, it's like, I, I realize that that first piece is not in a vacuum. There's a, there's a moral and an ethical frame around it that I just don't think about that much. And I need to think about it more. And I think we need to, um, you know, find ways to tie these things together from a traditional standpoint. Cause I think people are getting a more integrated view from, you know, I guess what I would say is sort of the progressive postmodern left. Um, but there isn't much of a voice of this kind of thing in terms of these more traditional uh, perspective. So uh, I guess what, what, what piece of those things would you want to bring out first to talk about? I think we should follow Leo's example because in, in Rerum Novarum, he initially kind of comes out firing on the family. And it's funny because in a, in an encyclical titled on the condition of the workers, um, one of Leo's first things to establish is the authority, the authority and the justness and the naturalness of the authority being vested in the family. And he calls the family the smallest, the smallest society where, you know, where the father is the head of the household and um, everyone else is sort of under that authority. That's the smallest society as, as sort of Leo puts it. And that's where you have to start any discussion of this. How is this oriented to the family? Because there are very many social programs which are oriented to the individual, where it's sort of a, uh, a grant to the individual or a subsidy to the individual. But this doesn't, uh, this doesn't solve a lot of the core problems, which are you need, there's no way to replace certain aspects of the local community. We've tried to replace um, the, the necessity of the extended family with like retirement accounts and social security and with, um, and with universal health care and with a lot of these other things. But, that, but what that does is it crowds out, along with the, the prevailing culture, it crowds out the importance of those things and the importance of the family and the local community uh, and of charity. It crowds those things out and replaces them with a product essentially. And in, in a more socialized country, they replace them more with a, a managed governmental program. But that doesn't replace them very well if you use a, a nation's birth rate as sort of the measurement. Because we're, West, the Western world is essentially dying off. I mean, I don't care how many, you know, sticks of deodorant, types of different deodorant you can buy if, if no one's having any kids, you know? Yeah, and, and it's funny thinking into the economic world. So I'm not a macroeconomist, but I, but I certainly did take um, coursework in that area uh, during my PhD studies. And, you know, I remember um, a few of the models that we used in macro were predicated on the idea of population growth as a determinant of the productivity of the country. And it's just such a funny thing to me that there's so little said about this, um, you know, e even though this is sort of a mainstream perspective that, you know, a growing population is the way you deal with, um, you know, retirement and you deal with, you know, the, the sort of generational differences in productivity um, and the fact that, you know, some people, you know, as technology progresses, some people are going to be pushed out of work. You know, the only way to deal with that is to, uh, you know, find ways to um, find additional productivity to make up for that. And, and, you know, one of the, one of the key ways to come up with that additional productivity is to make sure you have a growing population. Right. And, and I think, I think that's the most dangerous thing because regardless of how you try to manage it, whether it's retirement accounts or whether it's a, a governmental program or whatnot, 
you got to have people paying into it. There's, there's nothing you can do if you just don't have enough people to, to support your older aging population. And, you know, do we really think about, hey, how am I going to take care of my parents uh, in 10 years? Because they may need it in five to 10 years. The, the cost of replacing the extended family is much more than the cost of retirement. And that's not something we really say for. Yeah. And, and again, that, that's all focusing mainly on sort of the economic component rather, you know, there, there's so much more there in, in terms of, um, you know, ties to the past from a cultural perspective and, you know, what that responsibility does to us as political citizens, you know what I mean? In the sense that it's like, well, I can just offload my responsibility to take care of grandma on, you know, social security. She's going to get social security. I don't need to, um, you know, maintain any you know, location-based connection to her. I don't need to maintain any kind of financial connection to her. I don't need to maintain any kind of relationship with her really at all because I don't have to worry about her, you know, being hurt. And it's like, no, no, that's your responsibility. And when we take that responsibility away from you, we hurt you as a person. You know, you have less character um, because of that. Right. I think uh, I think that's mentioned actually specifically in Quadrissimiano toward the end where um, uh, then Pius XI is saying, when you take away um, from the local levels what can be done by them and, and assign that to a higher level, you actually engender um, something far worse than, than you can really imagine. Yeah, and, and that that's actually, well, so just for the listener, uh, Quadrissimiano Anno is a an encyclical that was uh, written several decades after Rerum Novarum. Um, and I'll put links to both of them in the show notes uh, so that you can look at those. But that uh, Quadrigacium Moana was written by, uh, I think, uh, Pius XI. Is that right? Yeah, it was, Quadri- it was uh, Pius XI. And he wrote it. He wrote, in, and I think he promulgated Quadrigacium Moana about 40 years to the day on um, for Rerum Novarum. Because Rerum Novarum used to have an annual sort of recognition. And, and that was ended at some time in the 60s or the 70s, I believe. I see. Okay. So where where do we go next in terms of this overview of Catholic social teaching? What is the next component that, um, maybe not necessarily from a practical perspective, but what, what are the sort of ethical considerations we should be cognizant of today from this document? Well, obviously he starts with the family. Um, he says that the family is sort of the societies of a man's house. Uh, it's, it's a very small society, one must admit, but nonetheless a true society. And it has rights and duties to, particular to itself, which are quite independent of the state. That's quoting uh, Rerum Novarum. So it's difficult to say how, how you can really restore that with the way things are sort of uh, structured now in society. You know, like, like, we've, like I pointed out earlier, um, and more like, like uh, many commentators um, have, have pointed out, um, such, you know, such as Tucker Carlson, um, hey, these millennials who can't start families, it's not entirely their fault. You can blame them all you want, but there are difficulties there which are real. We need to find a way to actually support people to have young families and to support um, reduced housing costs and um, and to support uh, the the you know the the expenses of, of having a family, but we have to do it in in such a way that um, is oriented to the family and not to sort of the atomized individual. And see, I think that's such an interesting way to think about it because one of the things you get a lot from, I guess, what we would call sort of the liberal right is, uh, you know, well, these students, you know, they made a bad choice. They took on all these loans and their degree's not worth anything. You know, that's their fault, blah, blah, blah. 
But I think what's interesting about Tucker and other people, I mean, Tucker's just the most high profile one. It's not like, I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything necessarily real special about him, but you know, he, he has a big platform. Um, and you know, the idea is that this is just sort of part of the way people think, you know, it's not, it's not that, you know, everyone's just making these sort of, you know, rational mathematics based decisions every second. Um, you know, and, and you make the decision to go to college to the extent that it's your decision on your own and not your parents. Um, you make that when you're like 18 years old. And especially if the, we have problems in the family, um, especially with, uh, uh, sort of, um, less well-off people, you know, read, um, really anything by Charles Murray in the last, you know, 20 years, uh, for this type of thing to get this idea, especially his most recent book, which I'll, I'll put a link to in the show notes. If I, if I can remember that, um, the, you know, you, these kids, you know, when you're, I mean, I say kids, I mean, you're an adult when you're 18 years old, but the reality is you're so used to having things sort of fed to you, whether it's in school or by your parents, you know, sort of the helicopter parenting thing um, that we got from Gen X and, and partly from the boomers, I think as well. Um, and it's just, it's this thing of, of, well, well, it's just, you're expected to do it. And it's like, well then, you know, that's not something somebody's, uh, that's not a decision someone's making with sort of full volition and full knowledge of the consequences of it. Um, you know, and not to mention sort of the, um, just, just the way the stuff is presented to them. It's like, well, you have to do this. And, and I think that kind of does them, well, I think it certainly does them a disservice um, in the sense that they're, they're, not, they're not equipped to make that decision completely. And so sure, a lot of them come out just fine with it, but there is a significant number of them who have serious problems with this stuff. Um, you know, with the debt and, and all of those attendant things and sort of the delay of starting a family and, this, the, the, the delay of understanding responsibility and all that sort of thing. Um, so I, I just think it's not, it's not one of these things where we can just say, well, it's voluntary, so you can't complain. Um, I, first of all, I think that's just a bad framing, but even if you were able to say it that way, I think the thing is there are these other uh, factors that affect your decision that make it difficult to say it's just this, you know, rational decision. Absolutely. I, I think that's, I think it's entirely an uncatholic thing to, to believe that somehow, you know, if it's voluntary, it's always okay. As if, you know, you, because you can enslave yourself, you can wound yourself and, and get caught into spirals and get, and get ensnared into things. And the whole point of a, uh, of the, of the family and the whole point of a society is to incline people to that good. The point of society is not to incline people to their own freedom, which, which is, the regime, which more or less created the the errors and the and the, and the difficulties we see today, and and again, Leo puts it quite well, and he 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 frames this in terms of the family, and even then he saw, and I'm going to quote this. He says, "The socialists, therefore, in setting aside the parent and setting up a state supervision, act against natural justice and destroy the structure of the home." And that's very powerful because he, he prefaces that, that by enforcing that uh, paternal authority can neither be abolished nor absorbed by the state for it has the same source as human life itself. Quotation from Aquinas, the child belongs to the father and is, and he goes on to comment on that, and is, as it were, the continuation of the father's personality. And speaking strictly, the child takes its place in civil society, not of its own right, but in its quality as member of the family in which it was born. 
And if you have this idea that, well, you sign the promissory note, you're done. You, you lose the next 10 years of your life. Um, that's, that's thoroughly against any sort of concept of the family and, and uh, when sort of the reaching of adulthood and, and how you're supposed to be guided to the, to the good things and not, and not sort of allowed to fall into these sort of pits. Right. And so it, I think it goes to this idea that, you know, if to the extent that we have a community around these people that helps them uh, understand things, or, I mean, starting with the family, obviously, um, that, that, that would support them and things like that. But it seems like it's just this idea that you're just, well, you know, you're done with college now, you know, good luck, you know, sort of go. And I think it's, you know, it's one of these things where I, I hear this a lot. And of course I'm, you know, I'm not the super expert on these encyclicals. So I'm always thinking about the stuff you're saying in relation to sort of more current events. And, um, you know, I, I, I've heard Ben Shapiro's conversation with Andrew Yang and with Tucker Carlson and, uh, and, and other times too, where he's mentioned this idea that it's like, well, you know, people should just be, um, you know, ready to strike out on their own. You know, what happened to the American spirit um, and all of this sort of thing. And it's like, gosh, that just misses the point. You know, it's like the idea that the, the highest good for you is to uh, just sort of strike out on your own and leave and, and go form your own thing um, to that degree, to the degree that you're willing to, you know, not care about the community that you, that fostered you, right. To not care about as, as much sort of in a, in a, in as, in a, in a, as connected a way about your family and it's, and it's destiny, um, just seems really backwards to me. Um, you know, of course you're supposed to, you know, you know, we're guys that we're supposed to, you know, get out of, get out of the house, you know, cut the apron strings from mom and, you know, start building our own family. But that doesn't mean we're supposed to just cut it off from all the social capital that we've built with our family and with our community. Absolutely. And, and I think all these stories of sort of the, you know, American striking out on his own, all of those sort of ignore how much sort of extended family support they needed really to get there. I mean, you talk about, I mean, it's funny, the Bill Gates example, you know, how he, you know, he, he was given all these advantages and inclined in this direction, given access to a computer at a young age. And, and so uh, he did it out of a garage. And, and I mean, who owned the garage and the house he did it out of, you know, I mean, uh, frequently, we have our best, our best opportunities in receiving the help of our families. So there is that entrepreneurial spirit. I, I love the, the enterprising aspect of it. And, and it's certainly something to be commended. But we also need to rely on um, our extended families and our support structures to be able to do so, those sorts of things without, you know, crashing and burning because there's a survivor bias in those sorts of stories. You don't, you don't hear about all the stories where people, you know, went into bankruptcy level debt to do certain things because they struck out on their own. Or um, I have a friend who's uh, his brother is taking sort of his inheritance from both of his parents who are gone and just sort of going out to LA to become, you know, try to become some sort of a writer or, or an actor and, you know, that may not work out well for him, you know, hopefully it does, you know, but so there's, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, mythology and sort of memetics behind it, where it's just this concept you have in your mind. It's, it's not based in anything, anything that's much larger and much, and much more real. Like uh, we, if you have a family and if anyone who has extended family who help with their children knows for a fact how, 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 how helpful that is because people get sick and think difficult things happen. And, and you have to have that to prevent, because the family operates on a pretty thin margin for the most part. 
Yeah, and 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 I think you know it's it's sort of interesting for me to to think about this sort of thing because, you know, I've just recently moved halfway across the country back home to be with my parents and my in laws, uh, to just be closer to you know, our, our support. And it's just amazing how, uh, you know, I can see to my wife and myself both. It's like our, just our anxiety has reduced and, you know, our kids are so much happier because they get to see grandma all the time. You know, they just love being around grandmas. Um, and it's, it's just, it's, it's such an intangible thing that like, yeah, of course we need to have our, you know, to be entrepreneurial and to be, uh, you know, to find our way in the world, but to, to completely sever that from, you know, parents and, and, and the rest of your family. It just seems so strange to me. And, 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 I, and again, confusing as to why I did it in the first place. <laughs> so, so where, where should we go next in terms of uh, Rerum Novarum? Where, where does Pope Leo XIII take us um, sort of on the next, uh, again, this sort of broad overview? Because again, you know, Rerum Novarum is sort of the thought of as the beginning of Catholic social teaching in terms of a formal document. Um, so where, where's he taking us next? What he go where he goes next is he he does sort of dive into parental authority and he weaves that into private property. Now he doesn't understand private property in the way that many might, where it, you more or less have sort of an absolute authority over anything that you anything that you acquire, um, you know, independent of anything else that may be happening. And and then this sort of principle gets applied to you know multinational corporations and and. You know, that, that part gets complex, but he, he lays down that one of the most important things is that someone receive um, and that they are building some sort of equity from their labor. Um, he's, building, he's building up to this. He doesn't say it explicitly, but it's the subtext of what he's talking about with private property in the family, that for a man to provide for his family, there is no other way than for him to begin to own things. There's no other way than to begin to uh, to build resources and, and provision from which he can then provide for the family. And, and as a father, that is as one of his chief responsibilities is to do so. And so perhaps we can think about how in, in our era, what sorts of policies could we implement and what sorts of, what sorts of changes to the sort of the societal structure could we implement to, and, and what resources may, may we have available already to, um, to provide for families to grow, to provide for families to be formed. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting part there that I think really gets emphasized in sort of the more, um, I guess the, the distributist uh, specific um, discussions of Catholic social teaching, which is this idea of ownership versus just merely selling your labor. Um, and the idea is that, you know, you should definitely have an option uh, you know, you should have income from capital. You shouldn't just have to be sort of pushed into only selling your labor. Um, you should be able to own something. And of course, that means, uh, you know, sort of personal property as well, like your house and, and that kind of thing. But it does also mean, you know, productive private property that, you know, of course, the socialists would not like uh, so much. So I think, you know, that, that seems to be a, an interesting thing when we think about, you know, when we think about uh, modern. So how does the modern world handle that? And, you know, the, the first thing I think of is, um, just the idea of retirement portfolios. I mean, technically speaking, that is capital income. You know, you're, you're, um, you're expecting to get a capital gain from that and you are shielded from the tax consequences of it while you're saving the money, um, and all of that sort of thing. So, 
you know, there are, I guess, to an extent, to a very limited extent, there are policies in place that, you know, incentivize the, the building of a capital income. Now it's all sort of in the, uh, very modern perspective of, uh, you know, saving for retirement. Um, but it, it is technically that thing. Now the question is, uh, you know, is there, um, is there something more that can be done that does not have, you know, what I would say are significant, um, significant unintended negative consequences uh, that, that would promote uh, that sort of thing. So of course, you know, as an economist, that's my first, you know, my first concern is that we're not actually going to get what we want out of this. We're going to get something worse. Right. And the, uh, a lot of people have, have come to this from sort of the distributist um, perspective or from, you know, well, like Rod Dreher's Benedict option, which, which goes back to the rule of uh, the rule of Benedict, which it, it does seem very fitting for our time because you have sort of the collapse or sort of the beginning of a contraction of what looks like the contraction of the American empire, where you sort of have all this control over the globe, but what it's essentially doing is it's sort of globalizing people and it, and it, and it acts as acid to, to local and to regional affinities and, and support structures. And so um, when the Roman empire collapsed, there was something that needed to step in and sort of, you know, provide structure and provide community and whatnot. And, and that's what the rule of Benedict essentially was, was there for. And so a lot, a lot there has been a lot of discussion from um, there's a, a book uh, called the rule of Benedict's rule, um, it, which talks about the, how it, how a 21st century version of that could be applied. There's also obviously the Benedict option by Rod Dreher. Those to sort of discuss what, um, you know, what could be done where you've got some, you've got some resources within some of these, some of these Catholic dioceses where maybe you create some sort of, um, you know, where you create communities out of it. If these buildings are empty and unused or uh, you find ways to provide housing um, or provide other resources to the community through the church, which would be the ideal way to, to begin to provide those sorts of resources. Right. And so I think that, you know, the, I think part of this is the wisdom of subsidiarity, which is the idea that the, the lowest or smallest competent political unit should handle, um, you know, whatever uh, policy or issue uh, is that is in question. And, you know, this, this would go all the way down to just the family itself. Um, but it could go up as high as, uh, you know, a community in this case, right? So you're saying putting this, putting this type of service at the community level would be um, preferable because it would allow us to, um, uh, it, it would, I, I think the advantage would be that you would get around some of the sort of what, what I call public choice concerns. Um, you know, the economic, uh, school of thought called public choice, where we sort of think about how incentives come are brought to bear on politicians themselves. And so if we're concerned about the administration of something, uh, going wrong, then potentially having some, and I guess this might sort of be a bad word to an extent, um, having some kind of, uh, um, the competition among these different units, you know, so that if, you know, one, so that one community is, is not, not just out of their own goodwill, uh, going to provide, uh, you know, sort of adequate and, and ethically, um, uh, ethically done, uh, um, 
you know, services for people, but, but also out of a sense of, okay, well, you know, we have to take care of people because if they, if we don't, then they'll go somewhere else. And so the bigger the political unit is that, um, that is managing that, the harder it is to use that, that sort of other, um, that sort of more market, um, market mechanism, uh, for ensuring that people sort of, uh, you know, provide these services correctly without any kind of, um, or with as little as possible, uh, sort of unethical behavior. Right. And, uh, you know, empowering local communities, would it, it's complex because you've, you've got these very powerful entities and um, it's almost like you'd, you sort of expect Amazon to step in and say, hey, we'll build all these, you know, we'll build pot apartments where you can live in like a tiny amount and, um, you know, and, and, and sort of Amazon's overriding reach. Like there's been talks of, of some of these large mega corporations putting in Wi-Fi for the, for, for local communities. It's just free for everyone. But what you don't see behind that is the data collection and the control that that corporation now has because, what the, because they've, they've sort of crowded out what a community could have done for itself. And so there's, there's a hidden danger in those sorts of solutions. And, and I, I sense that when I see solutions like what was called uh, if you Google like the family fund pack, it's a policy proposal where a lot of the sort of the left proposals run awry is they tend to they tend to be oriented like I said before to the individual and not to the family or or to the local community they they, they tend to do it from a top down approach which ends up further undermining sort of the local community's ability to provide for itself and what it amounts to is like when you've got a when you're building a garden or or even you're you're raising an animal what you have to do is train it you can't uh, you can't just provide for it. You can't just give it something. You have to teach it how to how to sort of uh, or or put the conditions uh, put frame the conditions such that it, it learns how to provide for itself, and and that's what we have to sort of carefully regrow within local communities because there really has been a diaspora. It hasn't been sort of just technology. It's also been policy that has sort of led to flight to suburbs and and these sorts of things, which creates which creates a lot of local community problems. Right. So, okay. So the, the next, wh where is the next um, component? Like, what's the next thing that, that, um, that we see in Rerum Novarum again, uh, to give us the sort of broad overview of Catholic social teaching? I think, I think there's a, there's an emphasis on um, the local community. It, there's an, there's an absolute condemnation and, um, but it, it's interesting there obviously he is the he is the pontiff he's the supreme pastor and he comes to it from a pastor's perspective that hey there are a lot of people who are misled into these sort of top down globalized revolutionary solutions and but and that's an error and we're going to condemn that but you have to recognize the conditions that fomented that error and the the fundamental problem with many conservatives especially in the american context is that they're not recognizing those conditions that are creating the sort of Bernie Sanders, AOC ferment. They're not, they're, they don't see what is so compelling about them. And so they mock them. Well, I, you know, I'll, I'll tell them straight up, if you're mocking AOC at your own, at your own peril, because regardless of how stupid it may sound to you, it resonates very strongly with people who are, who are on the ground and who are seeing these sorts of realities. And um, sort of a, an aside, Sweden had a very large sort of, um, has a very large set of provisions that Norwegian countries do for for young people and for families and what they found is that 
rather than creating sort of a super equal distribution of male and female gender stereotyped you know jobs and whatnot and and whether or not the woman would actually go to work these programs actually increased the number of women who decided they'd prefer to have a family um and because it was natural within you know it's natural for for many women to choose that when when they're not um when they don't emerge from college without you know well i don't have a husband i've, I've got to go to work so they go to work um and so we have to recognize that there are policies and and there are things that must be implemented and and the encyclical is very it's very, it's so universally applicable because it sticks to those fundamental principles of subsidiarity, of remaining focused on the family, of, of not thinking that giving all this power to the state to just do it from the top is going to, is going to just fix everything. And, and that's sort of the orientation that the, the beginning stages of Rerum Novarum do. And it, and it goes in further to outline under other things, which are probably, you know, far outside the scope of all the you know, stuff we've thrown out already. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting, um, that, that is an interesting application because I think, again, most of the folks that are the sort of progressive left will tell us that, you know, we just need more policies that are going to, um, you know, sort of incentivize women to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and, and it is funny that, you know, we see these, these social science studies in uh, the Norwegian countries where they have all that stuff in place already. And, you know, lo and behold, <laughs> you got a lot of, uh, you got a lot of female homemakers uh, that just choose to do that. Um, and so it is kind of an interesting sort of empirical, I think, rebuke of, uh, of some of that attitude. Um, and I think it's a good point you made. And I think you have some great blog posts about the, um, the family fun pack. Um, and, you know, to me, it just strikes me as this is just straightforwardly a reduction in the cost of moving into the labor force for both parents this idea that oh well, we're just gonna we're just gonna you know guarantee paid family leave uh for having a baby it's like well that doesn't that doesn't create a more stable family that just that just makes people think like well you know i can just go get a job and it's no big deal then um you know i'll be home for six months and that's all i need to take care of the kids six months and then you know uh back to work for me <laughs> you know it just seems like it's such a such a silly um solution it just doesn't it's either it's either deliberately designed to not solve the problem really or it's just really wrong-headed right and there's some interesting uh sorts of these policies in, in countries like poland and hungary where they they really do incentivize um families and well, we can't get too caught up in sort of the perfection and the ideal and sort of attack that too much but obviously we have to keep that ideal in mind that even if you have to sort of just give these handouts directly to women say you know you, you get three years off i think that's that's the uh, thing in hungary you know you get three years off for having a baby and you get these all sorts of tax incentives for having additional children I mean, those, those sorts of things are better than nothing. They're better, certainly better than what we've got. Um, but, but, we, but we do have to, you know, we have to find ways forward in, in policies like that that are oriented to the family. And I think more now than ever, we are, we are seeing people on the, both the left and the right are, are, are amenable to those things because they, they wish they had these local communities or these, or these stronger, uh, you know, local structures that, you know, that, aren't, that don't rest on, you know, your federal vote and, and, a, and a massively politicized, uh, you know, federal process. Right. I think that, I think that makes total sense. And, and it is kind of interesting to see this resurgence. And it does remind me too of this whole idea that, you know, the, it's, uh, you know, one of the explanations that people are giving, well, you know, the reason why so many millennials are saying, you know, uh, socialism is a great idea is just because there are these, 
um, these gaps in the, the sort of um, the, the culture that surrounds capitalism, liberal capitalism, um, that just leaves out these sort of very human, um, you know, tendencies. These very uh, these important parts of life that that do have an economic impact, but they're just the, the economic impact isn't, um, you know, just I guess isn't emphasized. I guess for fear of of um, you know appearing too traditional. I guess. <laughs> Right. I think there's, there's, a, there's some good quotes. Um, this, this, this is from a book called Benedict's Rule. Um, Benedict's vision of the small community is now more relevant than ever. At a time of imperial overextension and the threat of imminent collapse, at a time when citizen is a euphemism for taxpayer or cannon fodder or both, everyone is in need of a support community. At a time of demographic collapse, young people need to know that these small communities will support them in a specific way so they can marry and raise families. When they fail to receive that assurance from the church, the young people, the young simply fail to marry and have children, creating a sense of doom based on the feeling that there is no future. And then he goes on, the way, of the, the way out of this impasse is the small community, and it is my contention that Benedict is still relevant as an architect of the small community. The generation of Europeans and Americans now in their 20s is burdened by debt, largely as a result of education, unable to find jobs, many of which have been exported to, to third world countries, which will enable them to pay off that debt. And in many places, I'm thinking of New York and California, are unable to find affordable housing. As a result, family life seems like an impossible dream. As a result, they then sink into the illusions of sexual freedom, which their predatory cultures promote as ways to keep them under control. And something Leo, um, to end the quote, something Leo em emphasizes greatly in Rerum Novarum is it's not only economics, it's not only uh, these principles that should, should sort of guide society, it is also about moral degeneracy and how those things can sort of feed into one another. Because if you don't have prospects for raising a family, if you don't have prospects to, to sort of live this healthy, you know, wholesome life uh, in peace and godliness, then then you, you end up being prey to sort of the other things that culture has to offer. Yeah. And I, I wonder how much of that just Phil is, is um, explained by the sort of lack of family formation in the first place. So it's almost like a, uh, you know, it's just a vicious circle, I guess, you know, so we, we get this, this sort of revolution in the sixties where it's like, you know, well, families are, you know, worthless and just do whatever you want to do and that kind of thing. And so then, you know, lo and behold, we get a very broken family life on, you know, as a result of that. And then it just feeds itself. You know, you've just got these, you know, um, these zoomers and, and, you know, younger millennials that are just, you know, they're growing up without a father, maybe he left or whatever. Um, and they just don't have that um, sort of masculine understanding of, you know, duty and, um, uh, you know, establishing, uh, you know, a family. And that that's all of that stuff. You know, like Terry Crews recently was uh, absolutely raked over the coals for saying that, you know, your father's important. He, you know, he gives you your name. He tells you who you are, you know, and, and it's almost like, you know, that we, we just got this vicious circle. We got this you know, something went wrong and then it's, you know, how do we get out of this? And, Absolutely, yeah. and it is so interesting to talk to younger guys that they just, they just don't see any purpose in starting a family. They don't see any purpose in getting married and having children. 
they don't see the joy in that. And I, I think they just, they just see it as a giant web of constraints on their life with no upside. And it's just terrible to me that they don't see that. Absolutely. I, I think that the, the sort of the individual symptom that people try to treat is this lack of purpose because you, you don't have any sort of, even people who I see who are religious, who attend, who attend church or whatnot, they, they don't have this overriding sense of purpose and responsibility and duty and strength that comes from the order of the family. Because if you believe that it's your job to sort of, to be the, um, to be the, the chief provider and the chief source of, of strength and, and uh, you know, emotional culture for your family. If you don't believe that, then what are you here for? Well, you're here to play video games and, and, you know, and, and uh, participate in the sexual culture. And those things are going to be extremely appealing to you if you don't have something higher, something stronger, something better to sort of replace them with. One of the things I, I say people, to people online is you, you can't, you can't fight a meme. You can't, you can't just, you know, you can't just fight it directly. You have to, you have to beat a meme with a stronger meme. And so you, the only way with, for some people out of, you know, addiction or these other things, they have to find something else that gives them that purpose, something that gives them a stronger desire. And for most people in terms of addiction, most of what they're really looking for is some overriding sense of purpose and structure and order that really makes, gives them a sense of meaning because that's the most addicting thing in life is when you have this overriding sense of purpose that drives you and, and that when you, when you take an action toward this goal, that feeds you. And then when you receive, when you get rewards from toward that goal, that, that feeds you to do more. And, and, and so it builds upon one another. And if you look at any of these guys who are sort of the, you know, even some, some of like the manosphere types or, or the, um, or like the, if you ever, if you Google Jocko Willink, the, these guys, what they do is they, is they tell you that action leads, leads to purpose, meaning action, meaning deliberate action towards a goal leads to purpose, which, which then will feed your, your, your further actions toward that goal. And so when you do that on a societal level, when you take away sort of the primary function of society or you pretend that there isn't one, because the purpose of a society is sort of to perpetuate itself and to grow in, in justice and, and prosperity and flourishing, for, not prosperity only in material terms, but to grow and flourishing and human flourishing in, in all respects. And that has to be understood in context of the family, not necessarily in the context of the individual. Yeah, I think, I think that, that, that the, the individual framing is such a huge problem because it, it makes people, well, <laughs> I guess it, the framing just by default teaches you that families are constraints rather than the end themselves. Right. Something that holds you back from pleasure rather, rather than as the highest source of pleasure and fulfillment. Right. Exactly. And, and I think that goes along with this idea of sacrifice as uh, you know, I, I heard a fascinating engagement um, just a couple couple days ago. Um, I was at uh, a lecture at a university, and the speaker was talking about the sort of the four Aristotelian virtues and the three Christian virtues. So uh, faith, hope, and love being the Christian virtues, and the four Aristotelian. I, I don't know what the other term for them is, but it's you know, temperance, prudence, justice, and, uh, something else. Um, but, but the idea was that part of making you a better person is going through some kind of struggle and difficulty. And, you know, the interesting thing is he was talking about this movie. Um, oh man, 
I can't remember the name of the movie, but it's, it's a silly cartoon movie where um, you're inside this kid's head and there's all these little emotions and the emotions are all little people um, like joy and anger and sadness and fear. And the, the story of the, the movie is that it's centered around joy and joy thinks that sadness, her opposite is just bad and should be avoided at, at, you know, at all costs. But then what they realize by the end is that actually sadness is this important component of, you know, being a fuller person. And it was, it was so interesting because one of the people in the crowd was just, was just incensed by this idea that, you know, suffering builds character. And, you know, this, this person in the audience is like, well, so does that mean that because I get lucky and I have life easy that I'm somehow less human? And it's like, no, 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 you're not less human, but you certainly are, have, have some kind of a character defect because you haven't been given the opportunity to develop this character. And I, and I, I, I honestly see that as sort of profoundly Catholic in the sense that it's not this idea of just avoiding cost and avoiding uh, pain and suffering and avoiding, you know, bad things. Um, you, you're, you're just, uh, you're seeing the, the greater end or the, the, the broader point of all of this and you're getting yourself through that struggle um, and not simply avoiding it. And I think that's, that, that's a really good, um, a really good, I guess, archetype of uh, sort of the way a lot of these young guys are, you know, the way they view family and the way they view sort of their role as, uh, you know, potential fathers and husbands. Right. And, and I think the, the beautiful way in, in which that connects to Rerum Novarum is that it's not that Leo is saying poverty itself is a, is an intrinsic evil or not being, we, we need to all be wealthy. We need to all have a Cadillac in our, in our, in our garage, in our five bedroom house. It's, it's not about that. And it's not about, uh, it's not about the money or the provision in a sense. It's about man's inherent dignity when he strives to provide for the family, when he strives to accomplish with his hands and with his, and with his mind to, to provide for others, to, to achieve things in the world. And that's a high source of human dignity and flourishing in, in a sense that is it, what's much more dangerous is not so much um, poverty itself, extreme poverty, certainly when, when there are essentials that aren't met, when there's food, when you're not eating, when you don't have shelter, those sorts of things. But reg, but sort of the, the West's um, the West's much of the West's poverty um, is much more one of where you can't really, where you don't have a way to really impact your world, the world around you, or be a part of something that instills you with fulfillment and with purpose. And, and that's why you see all these uh, increases into the suicide rate and so, and so on, that people who are actually kind of well off and successful, they, they still strive after that feeling of, of, of fulfillment and belonging that can only come from, from really a small community. You, you, you can't, you can't live off of Twitter followers or Instagram likes. You, you can't live off of that stuff. It gives you the dopamine hit, but it doesn't give you the fulfillment that, that a real community and a real family does. Yeah. And I think that's just sort of the paradox of the technology that we have, you know, in, a, in one way, um, it sort of brings us completely out of these sort of authentic, uh, real physical uh, locality based communities 
but it's also given us an opportunity, I think, to, um, you know, given the fact that we have lost all of that over the last 60 years or so, um, it does give us an opportunity to kind of rebuild them in a, uh, you know, in an online <laughs> sort of facsimile or, or uh, you know, version of it. And, and I think it's, um, you know, maybe it, it, it is difficult because, you know, this, it's not the same thing to be, uh, you know, 900 miles away from each other talking, uh, you know, over some kind of electronic communication while playing a game or uh, just having a discussion or whatever. But, um, you know, it's kind of like, I, I guess part of me thinks, you know, there's certainly the ideal that you want, but there's also the, um, you know, doing the best you can with what you have and trying to move in the right direction towards that end that you would prefer. Right. And I think these sorts of technologies have a real, have a power to play in relocalizing us because it wasn't Twitter necessarily that, you know, that, that removed you from your local community. It was much more than that. It's Twitter is just one, you know, small symptom that's going on. And, and, and these, and these technologies can be used in, and there are all sorts of ideas out there on how they can be relocalized and, and, uh, and support the, the local communities and then support local communities and sort of binding themselves together and, and, and sharing ideas. Yeah. And so, I think, I think there's going to be some great opportunities for us to talk about some of those specific ways of sort of re-engaging and rebuilding community, um, you know, in, in the real world <laughs> and, and sort of maybe using some of this technology to help, uh, to help with that. Um, so is there anything else, any parting thoughts that you want to give us on uh, Rerum Novarum or Catholic social teaching more broadly? Right. Uh, obviously, obviously, the with Rerum Novarum, we we barely we sort of scratched the surface and looked at the intro and some of the main concepts that that Leo starts with and he thinks that are primary. But but there's t there's a ton to it. There's a ton of stuff in Rerum Novarum and Quadrissimo Milano that are worth worth reading in their entirety. I think they're about an hour and a half, two hour each to read. Um, but uh, but I think the parting thought is that we, is about changing because you, if you don't change your mindset and how you frame and view society, you can't change how, how you, you're endeavoring to sort of influence it and change it because your frame governs what you can and cannot do. It, it, it removes possibilities from sort of your, your window and, and sort of what you can see. That's great. And so with that, I think we'll sign off. Thanks for listening to the Trad Dads podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps us out.